As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. We're talking about the life support systems of the planet. Every single human being, and frankly, every other critter on this planet, has a direct and real stake in this issue. And what's been so exciting in the past 10 years is all the new voices that are coming to this issue. This is not an issue that's only coming from scientists or environmentalists or some liberal politicians. No, you're hearing restaurateurs coming to this. You're hearing financial titans coming to this. The insurance industry, small business, big business, lawyers, doctors, nurses, people from every walk of life, because this, in fact, does touch all of us. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was recently in New Haven and was lucky to have the chance to interview Tony Leisowitz. Tony is director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and radio host at Yale Climate Connections. Tony's on one of the front lines of the climate change fight, both through his radio segments on climate change. He's produced over 1,500 90-second episodes that go out on over 500 radio stations and with his expert research into public opinion on climate, which has really helped us understand where the public is on this crucial issue. We had a really excellent conversation. Please listen to it. So after a word from my sponsor, my interview with Tony Lizowitz of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Tony. Hi, Nathaniel. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So my name is Tony Lizowitz. I'm a faculty member here at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale. Uh, and I direct the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. And basically, we do two main things. One is we do research. So we study how do the American public and other publics around the world respond to this issue. So what do they understand and misunderstand about the causes, the consequences, and the solutions? Uh, how do they perceive the risks? So the likelihood and severity of different types of impacts could be health impacts, national security impacts, economic impacts, what kinds of policies they support or oppose, and then what kinds of behaviors are people engaged in around climate and energy and other environmental challenges. And so by behavior, we look at how people actually use waste or conserve energy at home and on the road, 
Secondly is consumer behavior. So will they prefer the products and services that are better for the planet? But also, interestingly, to what extent are they willing to reward or punish companies for their actions? And I'll actually just take a moment to say, interestingly and historically, Americans have been far more willing to essentially vote with their dollars on this issue than to vote at the ballot box. Though that's changing, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that. A third major kind of behavior is social behavior. So how do we talk about this? Or more often, why don't we talk about this? And also, what is the role of social norms, these unwritten cultural rules that actually guide much of our daily life? And uh, uh, let me just give you a quick example from my own background. I'm in my 50s, so this is a, maybe a little dated. But when I grew up as a kid, there was smoking everywhere. It was in bars. It was in restaurants. I mean, if I took an airplane, I would be strapped in a seat next to 50 other people puffing away in a metal tube. I mean, you could not escape it. If I was to pull out a cigarette right now and light it, you would recoil in horror. And that's not because of laws or regulations. It's because the social norm has so changed. That is no longer appropriate behavior. And it turns out those social norms play a really important role in lots of our decision-making, including politics, political behavior. And political behavior is the last major kind that we look at. Not just do you support a policy or not, or do you support a candidate or not, though we do some of that. What we've really been interested in is what leads people to become active citizens, to actually say, I don't want to stand on the sidelines and watch the world burn. I want to roll up my sleeves, get involved, and do what I can to make a difference. And then ultimately, we are scientists. So our ultimate question is answering why. What are the psychological, the cultural, the political reasons why some people get really engaged with this issue? Others are kind of apathetic, and some are downright dismissive and hostile. We work at a lot of different scales. We've done dozens of uh, nationally representative surveys here in the U.S. Uh, we've also did the first ever studies in China and India. And then we partnered with the Gallup World Poll for a few years where we studied this issue in about 130 countries around the world. So I'm happy to go to whatever level you'd like to discuss. And then out of this now more than a decade's worth of, of insights, we then also run our own small effort to engage the public ourselves. And that's primarily through a radio program called Yale Climate Connections, which is a brand new 90-second story every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, that currently plays on about 520 stations across the country. And these are stories of everyday people from every walk of life in their first-person voice describing how climate change is affecting their lives right here, right now. And importantly, their stories of how they're actually rolling up their sleeves and taking action. So it's been this incredible journey for six and a half years now of, uh, of a radio program and podcast and uh, website where we get to learn from Americans exactly how climate change is impacting us now and what people can do. That strikes me as a really important and really fulfilling job and a kind of an amazing place to have put yourself in a career. Can we trace your career a little bit to see how you got here? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, where'd you grow up and what kind of family and were was environmental concerns part of that? Yeah. So I grew up in mid-Michigan and I know your viewers can't see it, but I'm holding up my hand right now because I brought a map and on my palm, you can see right here, I grew up right in the middle of my palm, uh, just south of East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, I grew up on a 79 acre farm. My dad, however, was a professor at Michigan State, a professor of sculpture. Uh, I'm the son of two artists, but I grew up in the country. I went to a small rural school. I literally grew up, you'd leave in the morning and didn't come home until the dinner bell rang at night. Uh, lots of times in the pond, out in the woods, tromping the fields, playing with my friends, or just being alone. 
So it was an amazing childhood and, and being on a farm and it was a working farm. I mean, we had a horse and we had a cow and goats and chickens and uh, rabbit and, and so on. And so dogs, cats, uh, a pond with fish and so on. And so it was an amazing place to live in many ways. And so I had a very deep personal connection, I guess, to the natural world as a result. But I then went to undergraduate with the idea that I was going to be, well, I, I was an international relations major. And I studied Cold War politics because this was during the Cold War. And I thought I had a long career ahead of me basically keeping the world from blowing itself up. So I studied nuclear policy with the Soviet Union and China and the U.S. And six months before I graduated, the Berlin Wall came down. And my international relations degree turned into a history degree like overnight. So I, And this was at Michigan State. This was at Michigan yeah. State, yeah. So I followed a friend out to Aspen, Colorado, of all places, uh, with the idea I would, you know, ski a little bit, make some money. I had a dream I would travel around the world and so on. And instead, I ended up getting an actual job uh, at a wonderful little research institute called the Aspen Global Change Institute. And there I spent four years working side by side with most of the world's leading climate scientists, biodiversity scientists, global environmental change scientists. And it was this incredible experience. How did you land that job? That just seems like an incredible break. Uh, Answered an ad in the paper. I mean, really, it's That's that. wonderful. It, yeah. yeah, it's that, that insane. So, yes, I, I'm one of the first staff members of this institute. And, and again, it was just this incredible experience. I mean, I knew about climate change vaguely before then, but now I really, really learned it. What came out of that, though, is that at the end of that four years, I found myself getting increasingly frustrated. Basically, nothing to do with the people. The people are fabulous. But I felt like the natural sciences were helping us really understand symptoms, but weren't really helping us understand the underlying causes. Because the reasons why we have this problem, climate change or biodiversity extinctions, or at the time the ozone hole, was because of humans. And so the question in my mind was, well, if you want to solve these problems, the answer doesn't lie in the natural sciences. It lies in the human sciences. So what is it about human beings that leads us to perceive the natural world in the way that we do, to make the decisions that we do, to behave in the way that we do? And that led me back to graduate school and ultimately to this position where I'm still trying to understand that basic question. And you went and got a master's and a PhD at Oregon. Yeah, right? at the University of Oregon. And what, what did you study and what was your your dissertation? So my master's degree was in environmental studies. Uh, there I uh, had the great opportunity to study with Mark Johnson, who is very famous for publishing with George Lakoff. Uh, Lakoff and Johnson wrote the book, Metaphors We Live By. And so I studied with, with Mark, and I actually did my master's on metaphors of nature, trying to understand what are the range and diversity of metaphors that human beings use to conceptualize this incredibly complex, buzzing, beautiful and scary thing that we're part of, right? The natural world. And then I uh, decided to stay and I was the first person through a brand new PhD program in environmental science studies and policy. I also had to be trained in the discipline of human geography. So I'm also a geographer. Um, but I had the great opportunity and honor, frankly, of working with uh, one of the founders of the field of cognitive science of risk perception, a guy named Paul Slovic. He did a lot of cutting-edge work with Daniel Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky, also very famous in the realm of heuristics and biases and so on. So anyway, I was able to put together this incredible diverse set of, uh, of leading scholars and actually conduct my own first national representative survey of Americans' perceptions of climate change. And that's I've been doing it ever since. 
where are we now in terms of Americans' perception of climate change? So we've been tracking this in particular over the past 12 years uh, with a project that we call Climate Change in the American Mind. We do two nationally representative surveys a year, every spring, every fall, every spring, every fall. Basically, the big pattern, I'll just say quickly, is that when we started this back in 2008, climate change had hit a high watermark. And you may remember this. In the 2000s, a whole series of events happened that kind of bring climate change to you know, way up in public consciousness from inconvenient truth to the day after tomorrow. Turns out that disaster movie had a big impact. I actually did a national study of that. Arnold Schwarzenegger passes AB 32, kind of thumbing his nose at the then George W. Bush administration. You know, it was on television. NBC Universal used to do like uh, Environment Week where all shows had a green theme all surging to 2008, when let's just remind ourselves that the Republican candidate for president in 2008, it's only 10 years ago, well, 12 years ago, was Senator John McCain, who for years had been one of the primary champions of climate action in the U.S. Congress, okay? Obama and McCain didn't argue about climate change because they both basically said, yes, it's real. Yes, it's human cause. Yes, we want to solve it. McCain saying I want to solve it with conservative principles. Uh, Obama clearly not, but it didn't. Be, it wasn't a big issue in the campaign. It feels nostalgic. It is nostalgic <laughs> because it was just. But it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. But then what we find is that from 2008, that public opinion or public belief that climate change is even real drops 14 percentage points, bottoming out in middle of 2010 in just 18 months. An incredible drop in just accepting that is real. And so we've done a lot of analysis to try to figure out what happened in that critical time period. Was it the recession? You know, remember the housing bubble pops and unemployment surges over 10%? Was it that? No. The recession, unemployment had nothing to do with this. People who lost their job did not change their views about climate change. Was it changes in media coverage? Nope, that wasn't it. Was it some cold weather events? You may remember Snowmageddon happens back then. Nope, that wasn't it either. What really drives it is what we call... the political elite cues, that's a political science term, which is really just a fancy way of saying when leaders lead, followers follow. And what you see in that critical moment, of course, is that when Obama takes power is the rise of the Tea Party. And the Republican Party goes from its candidate and its national party platform said that climate change is real and human cause and a serious problem to then going way out on the last twig of the longest branch away from the science in just 18 months where it becomes the standard talking point to say climate change is a hoax. Okay, and so the public has been slowly, slowly working its way back ever since. And then just in the past five years, we've seen a really big surge until we're now back to where we were back in 2008 or even slightly above. How much do you read that change in elite cues to be the funding by Coke, people like that, of real efforts to change where that party is, where the Republican Party oh, is? Oh, you, you cannot separate it. I mean, look, mm -hmm. the Tea Party itself as a concept had been born something like 10 years earlier. Okay, People think the Tea Party was just this organic thing that kind of emerges out of nowhere. No, the Coke network had been building that concept, building this infrastructure for decades and then when that movement happens, and I'm not saying there weren't actually activists. There were. There were people bubbling up who were angry as hell and not going to take it anymore. But they immediately were embraced and amplified and supported with this incredible infrastructure, political machine that the Kochs and others had built over the prior decades and, of course, fueled with 
conservative media. And you cannot leave conservative media out of this. It's a huge part of this whole process. So, yeah, you put all those things together. And, of course, a lot of it is a reaction against Obama for a whole host of reasons. It's also a reaction against the health care bill, which is going on at the same time. Waxman-Markey, which is where there's real climate policy being considered. And, boy, does the fossil fuel companies start investing overtime because they're looking at real policy now. This isn't just a scientific debate. So, yeah, no, there's, there's a huge network that swings into action. So how do you land here at Yale uh, where I'm visiting you? And oh. how do you start these various or become involved in these various programs that you mentioned? Uh, luck. So I was uh, a research scientist out at a place called Decision Research out in Oregon. It's a world-class uh, research institute and thought I was going to be very happy there for years. Um, but I got a, a call one day from the dean of the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, a legendary environmentalist by the name of Gus Speth. And he said, you know, I've got a position out here. I'd really like you to, to come uh, and take a look. And I came out and uh, Gus is an incredible uh, person. He's an irresistible force, and he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So, what was that offer? No, I don't mean in terms of like compensation or something, but yeah, yeah. like what the position was and what you would be doing. Yeah. So he needed somebody to basically run a brand new climate change program that he had started because mm-hmm. um, he cared passionately about climate change. Had been in fact one of the first people in government to really bring climate change to the president's attention in the Carter administration. And so he was very active in trying to get more action across the board, across society. So in government, in media, and so on. And this is back in 2007. And basically needed somebody to come and run the program. And I said, okay, I will run that program, but I need to be able to do my research too. Mm. Um, And thankfully, we we, uh, negotiated well. And ever since then, we've been just growing and growing as a, as a research program. And so give me a sense of that. How big of an enterprise is it now as a research program? How many people work in it? What yeah. impact can it have? Yeah. I mean, we have about a dozen full-time staff mm-hmm. plus, uh, and scientists plus uh, probably another 30 students that mm-hmm. are very involved in yeah. helping this. So we're very much uh, a learning opportunity as well as uh, practice. On the media side, the Climate Connection side, that's probably another 25 journalists uh, across the country uh, doing that kind of work, plus radio producers and so on. So, yeah, it's a it's grown to be quite an enterprise. Was the radio idea, the podcast, was that there from the start or did that come along? So that happened also in that 2007-2008 moment when, if you remember, with the recession, Journalism was in a massive crisis, still is in a crisis, but really back then where the business model was broken, mostly because of, you know, uh, classified advertising. Craigslist. Craigslist. That's right. Yeah. I mean, whole papers went out of business and I think 50,000 reporters lost their jobs. And it was often the science and environment reporters who got canned first. And unfortunately, we lost a whole generation of some of our best reporters And climate change is not a story that you can just parachute into without any background or understanding. I mean, it it is a complex issue, and there's a lot of history and and permutations of this this issue, a lot of stakeholders in this beat. So anyway, a colleague of mine who was one of the founders of the Society of Environmental Journalism, a guy named Bud Ward, came to me and said, look, you know, there's this new model of journalism. It's nonprofit journalism, some of which can even be based at universities. Would you be willing to give it a try? And I stupidly said yes. And so we started by actually hiring a number of those uh, environmental journalists 
who'd lost their jobs and started with an online uh, news organization, essentially, doing online articles. Uh, then we, a few years later, added a monthly video series uh, with a videographer named Peter Sinclair, uh, which we've continued. And then about six and a half years uh, later, he came to me with the idea of doing a, a radio program. He had, he had done something kind of similar called Enviro Minute many, uh, many years ago. Uh, he said, would we like to try that? And again, I stupidly said yes. And now we are, I think we're nearing our 1,500th episode uh, story that we've, that we've broadcast uh, nationally. And you mentioned it was quite short. 90 seconds. 90 seconds. Has it been that length the whole time? The whole time. And yeah. that was a very conscious decision. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we could have done a half hour program, but yeah. then it would only play at like 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday. And yeah. like, I might listen to that yeah. or probably wouldn't listen to that. <laughs> so it would just greatly limit our ability. Yeah. Whereas with 90 seconds, yeah. that's the interstitial, right? I mean, especially because we're on especially public community and college radio stations. Yeah. And so they just drop us into, you know, that. 90 second slot that they have say in morning edition or all things considered or so on and so forth so it's perfect and it turns out you can do so much with just 90 seconds i mean you can tell an entire story in 90 seconds sometimes a constraint like that is a wonderful thing it is give me a couple examples of things that you've covered in 90 seconds oh gosh one of our first ones, in fact, our very first story, and I'll tell it as a longer story. You have 90 seconds. In 90 seconds. <laughs> so in the state of Georgia, there is a uh, company called Georgia Power that for years has been one of the dominant uh, energy providers. In, in They basically have a monopoly. And monopolies are great businesses. If you can get one, I highly encourage you to find one. I worked on it. Uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, they had set the system up so homeowners who put solar panels on their roof could not sell their electricity in the grid. Why would you want the competition? So in the state of Georgia, the Sierra Club partnered with the Atlanta Tea Party, one of the original Tea Parties. Let me say it again. The <laughs> Sierra Club partnered with the Tea Party. Okay, not computing, that. but go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> to fight that uh, those rules, and they beat them twice, and now homeowners can sell their electricity in the grid if they put solar panels on. That's so great. the question is, why would they do this? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sierra Club, easy to understand, bunch of greenies, tree yeah. huggers, we know why they did climate change. Yeah. Why would the Tea Party do this? They don't even believe climate change is real. <laughs> because it aligns with their core underlying value system. And this is what we see in our research is really driving a lot of the animosity towards climate change as an issue, mm-hmm. is what we call the value system of individualism, Hmm. individual liberty, individual freedom, individual autonomy. And that's usually framed as anti-government. Government's too big. It's too intrusive, too much taxation, too much regulation. We all know this discourse because we've been steeped in it for a generation or more. So the point is the Tea Party really reflected that kind of individualistic worldview. And for them, rooftop solar is a way of actualizing their values. Sure. It's not about climate change. It's right. about who is the government or some company to tell me what I can and cannot do with my castle. And if I'm producing electricity, why shouldn't I be able to con- sure. to participate in the free market? Yep. Okay. So the point is, is that it's an example of where totally different bedfellows can come to support the exact same policy for completely different reasons. Yep. And that, to me at least, is the art of politics. Yep. How do you build coalitions for policy change that may not all do so for the same reason. I think it's a really important thing to understand about politics that not everybody who's very strong on climate change always gets. 
That's right. Yeah. That's what, right. What's another example of a 90 second? Innovative stuff. I mean, just incredible innovative stuff. So there is a restaurant in San Francisco called The Perennial. A couple world-class chefs, they had a kid, and suddenly the future became really important to them. So they decided to quit their jobs and create their own restaurant that basically, well, you've heard of farm to table. Mm -hmm. Well, this is kind of farm to table to farm. So what they did is they built an aquaponic greenhouse over in Oakland, I believe, where they grow the vegetables that they serve in the restaurant, but the vegetables grow in a water solution with fish in the water solution. Hmm. So uh, the vegetables are getting fertilized by the fish and the fish are, you know, swimming in there and both are being used to feed the patrons and then the table scraps are going back and feeding the fish. So what they were trying to do is to create as much as possible a closed loop. Yeah. Is that going to solve climate change? Of course not. But yeah. that's a perfect example of how people from within their own domain of influence are thinking very creatively about what can I do to help address this issue? What are the main sources of these stories that you're coming up with? How are they coming to you? Well, I got to say, it's just looking. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that the traditional media just doesn't do because they tend not to tell these kinds of stories. Mm. But we have a team of reporters across the country. They're constantly looking for them. Mm. So they come. Some of them are brought to our attention. Some of them are ones that we go out and find. Sometimes they're things that somebody else has like mentioned in an article somewhere. Uh, and then we say, oh, there's there's something interesting there. So, yeah, they come from lots of different directions. And uh, and again, we welcome story ideas uh, if anyone has them. Do you read them? Do, Do I read them? Yeah, or who, or are they read by each reporter? So the radio stories, I actually narrate. So our producers will actually interview the person, uh, collect the actualities is what they're called, yeah. and then we construct the story to help provide the context. And so that's my job is to basically provide that narrator role. What was your favorite of all time? My favorite of all time? Oh, boy. One of my favorites, at least, is because it, it's – got such an emotional hook is um, Reverend uh, Lennox Yearwood uh, started a, a music company called Climate Music, People's Climate Music. He got some Grammy-nominated artists to do a cover of the Beatles' Here Comes the Sun. And it's the way he describes the vision of this. And, and, and that song now, of course, takes on all this additional meaning in the context of climate change and solar energy. Here Comes the Sun but also that sense of hope that this is a really tough struggle. And, and he says this so much more powerfully than I do. This is a really tough struggle. And it's easy to get despondent and depressed and feel like there's no hope. And yet, here comes the sun. I mean, that there is hope, that there, it is a struggle worth fighting for, as he says. That's one of my personal favorites. What effort is involved for you in each one? Is it a lot of time to do each one of these episodes? It's not that bad. I mean, I, I do get involved in the editing process, mm -hmm. but I mean, the scripts are ultimately written by our reporters. And then I have to go in and do a few hours of, of narration taping. So uh, it's not that bad. What's your sense of the impact? What comes back to you after you put these things out yeah. in the world? So we know that there's tremendous enthusiasm for the for the program among the radio stations, because we've grown from, I think we started with maybe 130 stations at the beginning, and now we're up over 520. And so, and what's interesting is that most of those stations are in quote unquote Trump country, not Clinton country. We've actually mapped them. We're reaching a lot of Americans that you might not think of as being interested in climate change. 
to us, that's super exciting. I mean, it may not be San Francisco, though we have stations in San Francisco, but in some ways we're more excited about engaging people living in Nebraska or Idaho or Oklahoma because they so rarely ever hear the words global warming or climate change. And when they have, they've tended to hear it in a very negative, conspiracy-oriented kind of uh, framework. We've been really excited about that. Uh, And we also have seen how they do on social media, and we've learned a ton. I mean, one of the things that we see is that conservatives are very engaged with our stories. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, not because they're like saying, hey, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but because they click through. In other words, they want to know more, Mm. which is entirely appropriate given where most conservatives are right now. And it's actually a really, I would say, somewhat hopeful sign. I mean, yes, of course, we wish conservatives understood the gravity of this issue and were actually taking the lead or at least trying to jostle for the lead. But given where they are right now, this fact that so many of them are, in fact, curious, they want to know more, they want to learn more about this issue, I think is at least one glimmer of hope. Has the climate denier side taken note of what you do? Is there any coordinated other side of this that's out there in the radio land? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, they were, you know, Rush Limbaugh was doing this work and, you know, putting out climate denial long before we came along. So Mm -hmm. if anybody owns their airwaves, it's Rush and and his uh, followers or his uh, imitators. So, yeah, no, they've, they've been doing this approach and not just on radio, but you know, on television, on radio, on, on social media. No, they've been very sophisticated. As a communication scientist, I have tremendous respect for what they have wrought. They are really good. They also have a lot of money, but they're also really good. How do you think the moves that Trump made to pull us out of an accord, to change the number of scientists in government, a lot of the things that he's doing that are going the other direction. How do you think that's affecting public opinion? So we can see that public opinion is actually reacting against that. Mm -hmm. It's actually why Trump felt the need to, a few months ago, come out and try to claim, he did a whole speech, if that's what you can call it, about what a great environmentalist he is. He says, nobody cares about the environment more than I do. You know, clean water, clean air, all that kind of stuff. It's because they're vulnerable. And we see that actually in our data. So we've been asking Americans, how important are 29 different issues in determining your vote Mm -hmm. for president in 2020? And climate change and the environment have soared in public priorities over the past, say, year and a half. If you're advising a regular citizen, what are the best sources of information for them about climate, about this complicated environment that we're changing so much, where would you say people ought to go? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so many options. Um, Start with NASA. Mm -hmm. NASA has actually a really good website on climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I would just encourage you to go there. And and if you're interested more specifically in the United States, uh, go take a look at the National Climate Assessment. It's actually a very well put together uh, report for the public, and it's interactive. It's it's Web 2.0, um, and it really is organized in a way that's trying to answer people's questions about climate change, not just a bunch of science. So at least there's two very reputable sources that makes it easy, but there's plenty other options out there. You must, in your position, from time to time, have to answer the sort of basic question about why do we know that this is real? Mm. It must be frustrating, actually, to face that when 
it's kind of like the evolution question. How do we know evolution is real? Well, oh my God, it's written throughout every piece of biology everywhere that everyone's studying. But yeah. how, how do you respond to that kind of question that's so broad? Our particular interest is why do people believe it is real or yeah. that, or why do they not yeah. believe it's real? Right. Um, but some of that has to be a little bit grounded in what we can measure and see. Oh, no and, question. And yeah. look, th people often go, oh, they just discovered this issue. I mean, no, this the science on this goes back to the 1800s. Okay. And, and it's actually perfectly understood at its core. It's actually quite simple. Carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, but mostly carbon dioxide, traps heat. I mean, this has been performed thousands and thousands of times in laboratory experiments in the high school. I mean, you, your kids can do this and show that, in fact, when you fill a chamber with CO2, it traps heat. And really, it comes down to something that simple. Because we are burning fossil fuels, and land use change as well, but mostly the burning of fossil fuels, we're pumping gigatons billions of tons of this carbon pollution into the atmosphere where it basically creates like a blanket. It's a heat trapping blanket, just like the way your mom might have thrown a blanket over you on a chilly night and your body heat gets trapped by that blanket. In a similar way, that blanket of CO2 or carbon pollution encircling the earth is trapping more and more of the sun and the earth's energy at the earth's surface, which is warming up the atmosphere, or at least the lower atmosphere where we live, which then has all the negative consequences of, you know, not just the melting of ice, but the shifting of weather patterns, making it incredibly hot, drying out things. We're seeing that right now with what's going on in Australia and so on and so forth. I mean, just many, 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 many consequences. And then there's the evil twin of global warming, which doesn't get as much attention, and that's ocean acidification. Because the fact is that all that carbon pollution that's going in the atmosphere most of it ends up actually being absorbed by the oceans. The oceans themselves have become more acidic, okay, and are becoming ever more so as they absorb more and more of that carbon dioxide. And that is now having consequences for the entire food chain in the world's oceans. So although ocean acidification doesn't get the attention it really deserves, that's the other side of this same pollution problem that we're talking about. So are we doomed? Oh, gosh. Uh, that's our choice. Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote Henry Ford here, who said, those who think they can and those who think they can't are both right. Because if you don't think you can, then this is self-fulfilling prophecy. Because you won't. But the fact is, is that we have all the capabilities currently in hand. We don't have to invent cold fusion. Though if anybody out there has invented cold fusion, please give me a call. <laughs> um, but we don't need it. We have the technology now. We have the capability now. I mean, in fact, many of the solutions are actually now cheaper than coal and oil and even natural gas. But we're up against a system that has been built to exploit those particular sources and a political and economic system that wants to hold on to the status quo as long as possible. So that's what I mean by it's our choice. The climate system hasn't reached a runaway status yet, though it could. And unfortunately, our window of opportunity to head off those kinds of runaway events is narrowing. I mean, we've wasted the past 40 years. So time is getting shorter, but the solutions are readily at hand. It's really a question of what I would call public and political will. What is making you most optimistic that we will find that will make the changes or 
sort of have them invented and and let the economy sort of take care of it, which when pricing for solar is lower, it, it sort of drives that. So I would say, broadly speaking, two things. One is just innovation. So the fact is, is those solutions are available now. I mean, the price of wind, the price of solar have dropped so precipitously that they are literally cheaper than coal or oil in most of the world. And so that just wasn't the case before. This is not a case of having to eat spinach or something. This is actually, I mean, whole giant utilities are saying, we're actually going to mothball our existing coal-fired power plants that are running right now because it's cheaper now to just take the loss on that big capital investment and instead put the money into wind and solar, which are cheaper now and only going to get cheaper and cheaper because the ultimate fuel source is free. So one, the innovation side, and it's not just about the energy and it didn't side. seem like that was going to be like only 20 years ago. That's right. It, it really didn't seem like it was going to turn like that it, it, or actually, even maybe more recently. So Michael Grunwald wrote a whole book on the New New Deal, which really, I think, captures this well. Most people don't understand that one of the great legacies of the Obama administration is that in that process of responding to the financial crisis, they were able to, to uh, get $80 billion, I think, uh, invested into the clean and renewable energy revolution. They dramatically accelerated, catalyzed this process. And that's why, or at least one of the main reasons why prices have dropped so dramatically uh, in the past 10 years. So they haven't gotten full credit for, for that big investment. But anyway, so the innovation side is one piece. And it's not just on the energy sector. It's also the food sector. I mean, it's financial industry. I mean, there's so much going on right now. But the other side that I think has been so critically missing is this public wills piece. And that is that for years, most climate organizations and environmental organizations were essentially pursuing what I would call an inside the beltway strategy. These were professionals, right? Policy wonks, economists, you know, uh, writing legislation, lobbying elected officials directly, making the rational case, here's why you should act. Unfortunately, they were up against a foe that was far bigger, had far more influence, far more money. And those rational arguments alone just aren't strong enough to win the day. I think Waxman-Markey is a case in point. What they unfortunately didn't invest enough in, in my view, and not only just my view, there are many scholars that feel this way, is they did not invest in building political power. Power in the districts, the public will, their constituents in every Senate, district, every congressional house district, in every state senate, state senate, uh, in city hall, saying you are going to act. In other words, exerting political muscle. And just to make a key point on this, the, there's a political science term for this called the issue public. And so as somebody who studies public opinion, people often think, okay, look, public opinion, the goal with public opinion is just to get a majority of Americans to support something. And that's important. I don't say that's not important because in the end, majority support means that a politician feels safe in taking action because they feel like at least the voters aren't going to punish me. But that's not enough. You need what's called an issue public. An issue public is a small percentage of the country or the population that are deeply, passionately concerned with an issue. And we know what issue publics are. It's the pro-choice or the anti-abortion movement. It's the pro or anti-immigration movements. It's the uh, gun control movement or the NRA. Let's take the NRA. NRA is a great case in point. We're a country of over 300 million Americans. 
The NRA, you know what their membership is? Several million. Yeah, it's like four or five million. Yeah. Okay. Four or five million in a country of over 300 million. They punch way above their weight politically. Why? Because they're organized. Okay. They're organized to exert political power. And that's something that, unfortunately, the climate movement, the environmental movement, and frankly, I'd even say more broadly, the progressive movement had not sufficiently invested in in the past. And that, however, back to my what brings me hope, is what we're seeing growing like wildfire, I think, across not just the United States, but around the world. When you think about the groups that are uh, doing some of that punching, mm-hmm. I've talked to a few leaders of 350, Sunrise Movement, uh, groups that you're aware of across that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Who, who do you think is doing good work out there? Who comes to mind? So I think there's a lot of groups. You, I mean, 350 was doing this early, though not as focused on the politics. Yep. Um, Sunrise, clearly focused on the politics. Yep. Uh, Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign really hasn't gotten the attention it deserves, yep. but they are hugely responsible for the shutting down of hundreds of coal-fired power plants in this country. And also Citizens Climate Lobby. And I, you know, let me just use them because they're a great example of an organization that came out of nowhere and has now become a big organization because they tapped into this niche that all the other groups had basically left wide open. And that is, they didn't treat their members as just checkbooks. Okay, So many other organizations basically say, all we want from you as our member is to write us a check, maybe write a letter to your congressman, or maybe to you know give them an occasional uh, phone call. Uh, and that's it. Citizens Climate Lobby instead said, no, we are explicitly organizing each of our chapters in each congressional district in the country. So the the organization itself is structured around our political boundaries. And then within each of those, they recruit activists, and they don't just take their money, they're training them. They're teaching them, how do you actually lobby your local officials? And how do you do so at their town halls? How do you do so by going into their local offices? How do you do so by going to Washington, D.C. and barnstorming the Hill and demanding that they act? And what people report is that it's one of the most liberating things they've ever done because they actually see that by being an active citizen, you can, in fact, make a difference. And, and the other great thing about them in particular is that they're bipartisan. So they have met with James Inhofe, the you know, climate denier in chief, over and over and over and over again. And they're basically telling him, we are not going away. We're going to continue to build our strength and holding you accountable, but also seeing are there places where we might actually agree? And I mean, from what I understand, James Inhofe is actually a pretty good supporter of wind power mm. because it turns out Oklahoma is part of the Saudi Arabia of wind. There's enormous economic opportunity there. And again, back to the point of maybe strange bedfellows, maybe you can even get somebody who's just ardently a climate denier to nonetheless support at least some of the solutions because it's in their own interest. What's your take on Greta and her impact on this whole public opinion thing. Oh, I think it's just astounding. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's because what's changed is not just this increasing citizen movement, but this is happening in a world where we're ever more connected because of our devices. Yeah. Greta goes from being a solitary teenage girl sitting by herself with a little hand-printed sign outside the Swedish parliament to just 13 months later, leading the single largest climate march in the world with 4 million people around the world joining her in the streets demanding action. I mean, that's incredible in the space of just over a year. Having my teenage daughter know 
like, well, she saw her in person actually, but like having her be a celebrity mm-hmm. is amazing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. A- and a role model. Yeah. I mean, because that's crucial is that teenagers and frankly, adults have been incredibly inspired by what Greta's doing. And I think to her credit, she has decided to focus entirely on saying, just pay attention to the science. I'm not here to tell you what to do, what the solutions are. I'm a kid, but I am telling you that you need to take this issue as seriously as the science suggested it is. Um, So I think that's a very powerful thing. I think keep your eye on that movement, though, because its basic communication strategy has been to be very condemning of adults. You know, you have failed to act. And I think the danger is that it becomes a generational conflict. Uh, I think it's entirely appropriate to be lobbied at politicians and at leaders of big companies. But the fact is... is You don't want to alienate your potential allies. No, and this is an all-hands-on-deck moment. I mean, we need the older generations at least as much as we need young people to stand up and act. How do you think this plays into the 2020 presidential election? So that's been one of the fascinating things in the survey data is Mm -hmm. that we have seen uh, climate change. In fact, we just reported this uh, a week ago, is now the number one voting issue among liberal Democrats. And it's number five among moderate conservative Democrats. That has never been the case before in American political history, where climate change is at the very top of priorities. Uh, And we've seen this building and growing over the past two years. I think that's not only incredibly important, but I think it helps us explain what's been going on in the Democratic primary race, where all 372 candidates who've been running for the Democratic nomination have all talked about how climate change will be one of their priorities. Yes, there's a spectrum in terms of their plans and how serious they are about it. And sure. And some of the most serious have been knocked out quite quickly. That's true. Governor of Washington. But but Jay Inslee had a huge Mm -hmm. impact on the field. I mean, Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren basically adopted his entire climate strategy. Mm -hmm. In fact, a number of his his advisors came straight over from him. Mm -hmm. So I think Jay Inslee actually had a huge impact in reorning the field on this issue. So, no, the issue is being talked about more. And this is where it gets really fascinating because you see this symbiotic relationship between the base of the party and now the full party is increasingly saying, what are you going to do about climate change? So the people running for the nomination are talking about it more. And the more they talk about it, the more it elevates as an issue among their public. And it's this positive feedback process where they feed off of each other. They support each other. Do you think in a general election it helps the Democrat uh, if they run on that? So my crystal ball is cloudy, and frankly, I think everybody's crystal ball is cloudy. If this is a normal election, which we know it's not going to be, (laughs) you know, in the past you would say the Democratic candidate is going to run to the left in the primaries and then run to the center in the general. And likewise, the Republicans going to run to their base in the primary and then run to the center. That's not how elections are done anymore. There just seems to be such a small number of true, quote-unquote, undecided swing voters out there that you get more traction. In fact, I'd love to hear your viewpoint on this, that there's more traction in actually ginning up, generating energy and excitement from your base because you just need your own people to get to the polls. What I would say in a normal world is that climate change would be a big issue as it is right now among the Democratic nomination process. But once we get to the general it's probably not going to get talked about so much because the other thing to just recognize is that I don't care who the Democrats end up with. 
the contrast between that person and Donald Trump are going to be legion. I mean, they aren't going to need climate change to make the distinction. However, I could see climate change coming up in that context as exhibit A in a larger narrative, in a larger argument. This guy is so out of touch with reality, he doesn't even accept the reality of climate change that we can all see with our own eyes and that many of us are experiencing directly. Okay? I could see that being part of a larger argument uh, being made. But I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, I think it could also come up. Bernie has brought up climate change on his own over and over and over again. Would he continue to do that if he was the Democratic nominee? He might. Yeah. So I don't know. You referred earlier to sort of this dip in public opinion uh, a little while ago that's coming back. Yeah. In terms of sort of the battle for the public mind on this issue, how do you think it goes going forward and how are we doing? Yeah. You're part of that battle as I see it. Sure. So there's a lot of angles to that. Um, first of all, I think the surge that we've seen is uh, due to a couple things. One is the fact that at least some political leaders are talking more and more about it. Secondly, I think the science itself has gotten much more dire. In the past couple of years, we've seen major reports from like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They did a big report about what it would take to hold to just one and a half degrees, which would be no picnic uh, in terms of the impacts. But, you know, we basically would have to do a, something that's never been seen before. We'd have to reduce emissions globally by like seven and a half percent each year for the next 10 years to achieve to hold to 1.5. Uh, holding to two is going to be really hard. And after that, it starts getting really, really scary. So those have been incredible wake-up calls. And then the other is that the media has started to report this more, which is critical. Most people only know about this issue because of media. And then there's the role of direct experience. And we have been tracking that for many years. And I would just say that I think we're just now starting to see the signal of direct experience emerging out of the noise and actually beginning to have a real influence on public opinion. Most people aren't quite there yet. Where they are right now is essentially they've got the question in their mind. They're seeing these record-setting one-in-a-thousand-year flood after a one-in-500-year fire and so on happening over and over again. And the question is forming in many people's minds, what the hell is going on with the weather? Does this have something to do with climate change? So they haven't yet reached the conclusion there, but they're asking the question. When I was walking up the hill here to come visit you, I was thinking about personal behavior mm. and how that fits in. It seems to me like it's one of the most difficult things to change. I'm still driving a car. There's a lot of things that fossil fuels have done for me that I appreciate, including sure. run my computer and everything else. Definitely. And you were talking about norms and stuff, but does this get solved around personal behavior or yeah. are there other roads that, that we have to travel great, because of that problem? Great question. So um, there is no silver bullet to this. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Bill McKibben once famously said, we need silver buckshot. Uh, another way of describing it is we need a portfolio. There is no one solution. We need all the solutions. We need energy efficiency. We need more clean energy. We need to change our buildings. We need to change our transportation system. Uh, we need to change the way we grow food. All of these are part of the solution. Personal behavior is complicated. There are things that actually are pretty easy to do. And then there are those things that aren't are maybe a little bit harder, but actually will save you money, they will make you more comfortable, they will improve your health, and all those kinds of things. 
And I've got colleagues who have actually calculated this out. If all Americans took those you know, basically good, straightforward uh, actions to reduce their own carbon footprint, the American public could reduce U.S. emissions by maybe 9 or 10%. And that would be an enormous contribution to solving the problem. Because again, there's no one best solution. But it's only 9 or 10%. The other 90% has to come from structural change. I would love to be able to build myself my own high-efficiency bullet train from New York to L.A. I can't do that as an individual. That is something that only can be done if my society decides this is important, as they did in China, as they did in France, as they did in Japan, where they said, this is something as a society we want to invest in together. And that's where this issue comes back to the role of government, that the government has to play a role. Government is of the people, by the people, for the people, so we can accomplish things together that we just simply can't accomplish as individuals. And it's that deeper struggle that's really the backdrop of what's going on around climate change. Yes, we get all fixated and the deniers love to try to critique the science. But when you scratch the surface, where they're really coming from is that in radical individualistic worldview that I was describing earlier. They're afraid of government. Okay, That's a minefield that was laid it's down a, They're afraid that this they... is an excuse to make big government totally. and take over the economy. Yes. That's well, the big scary thing. You see that in their rhetoric all the time. They say this is a UN plot to take away our sovereignty. They, mm -hmm. they call environmentalists watermelons. They're green on the outside, red on the inside, mm -hmm. right? This is really all about communism. We all are red in the inside, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm at least not green at the moment, uh, occasionally when I'm envious. But so anyway, the point yeah. being is that that is their worldview. They, they have interpreted this as, in, as an assault on their core values. And yeah. so they fight like hell yeah. to try to preserve their preferred society. Is there one big policy change, carbon tax, something that you think would be the biggest bullet if everything is buckshot? You know, globally, uh, some of the most important things are really stupid stuff like energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. Like we waste so much energy. I mean, you're literally opening up the window of your home, most of us, and just throwing money out the window mm -hmm. just because your home's not energy efficient. Mm -hmm. uh, food waste. Uh, Americans literally are throwing away a third of the food they buy. And it takes carbon to make all that food. It takes carbon to make all that food. And in the case of food, if you're throwing it away, it ends up in the landfill where it rots and turns into methane, which is a super potent greenhouse gas. So it has a double effect. So a part of this is just efficiency. Okay, It's just efficiency. And then you get to bigger issues, especially globally, around things like the education of women. That if you educate people, especially girls, you profoundly change these societies, which leads to all kinds of ultimate benefits, which can uh, lead to reduce carbon emissions. But it seems like if there's this big externality, this problem with using energy, hmm. that if you tax that and you change the price of energy to pay for the problems that it's created, maybe that's like a way to make the economy work for you. So that's certainly many economists would say, putting a price on carbon. So it's which energy gets that price. Yep. Because right now, the fact is, is that carbon-based energy, fossil fuels, coal, yep. oil, are being subsidized by us right. in all kinds of ways. Yep. The direct subsidies that we literally, as taxpayers, shovel to these fossil fuel companies, 
but also the implicit subsidies and all the costs that they impose on us. They don't pay for all the health consequences of all those coal-fired power plants, which are harming the health of Americans who are showing up in emergency rooms. Yeah. We pay that. Yeah. Okay, We don't know that we're paying it, and that's why they get away with it. But we pay that uh, billions of dollars in, in support for them. So the idea is that if you put a price on those fuels and make them actually cost what they actually cost all of us, it will dramatically accelerate the transition towards clean and renewable energy because it, guess what? You know, n nobody has gotten a lung disease from standing next to a, a solar field, right? Or, or a wind power plant. Apparently it's killing a lot of birds if you listen to our president though. Which is itself ridiculous. So there, it's true. Yeah. There, birds can die uh, in interaction with turbines and they've done tremendous work to actually uh, reduce that as much as possible. But there's always the context because yes, a few thousand birds die in wind turbines, hundreds of millions of birds die because they breathe the air coming from coal-fired power plants, yeah. let alone feral cats. It's always compared to what? Yes, compared to what? Yeah. There's no, there's nothing perfect. And yet the discrepancy in scale is just not even comparable. So here you are at a great research institution working on this important topic. Does it impact New Haven directly? Or do you worry about the oceans rising? The Will there be flooding here? When you're thinking locally, how does it affect you and, and where you are? Yeah, um, I mean, my focus tends to be much more national yep. and international, so yep. uh, I'm not an expert. But I do know enough to know that, of course, New Haven's right on the coast. It's right on the coast. Yeah. And we are vulnerable to flooding. And in fact... We and extreme went, weather. And extreme weather. I mean, yeah. I, we went through, you know, a couple of major hurricanes, including uh, Superstorm Sandy, just a few years ago. And yeah, I mean, I lived in a neighborhood where homes were literally lifted right off their moorings and destroyed. So no, I've seen these kinds of impacts. And every storm that occurs now isn't just potentially stronger because of climate change, but it's happening on top of seas that are now at a higher level than they were. So, I mean, you can even look at Sandy itself. They can calculate there are whole, you know, acres and acres and thousands of homes that were affected by Sandy that happened because it happened on top of higher sea levels, right? So the fact is that this is happening now. Uh, it's happening right here in New England. Uh, it's happening all around the U.S. coast. And it's not just limited to sea level rise, of course. It's extreme weather of many different types, including uh, droughts and heat waves and fires and and really uh, a long litany of disasters. What's the question that I should have asked that I failed to ask? Oh, what's the diversity of opinions within the United States? That's really interesting because when we started doing this work, we realized Americans don't have a single viewpoint on climate change or frankly any important issue. Uh, then people often just divide the public into believers and deniers. That's way too simplistic. Mm -hmm. Um, and so over 10 years ago, we identified what we call global warming six Americas, six different publics within the American public that each respond to this issue in a very different way. And one of the first cardinal rules of effective communication or education or life is who's your audience? Who are they? Mm -hmm. What do they know? Speak differently to different types of people. Well, or engage them in terms that meet them where they are, mm -hmm. not where you are. Yeah. With this, we identify these six Americas. One is a group we call the alarmed. These are people who are firmly convinced it's happening, it's human caused, it's urgent, but they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. We as a community have failed to communicate effectively enough 
What can they do as individuals, as communities, as cities, as states, as a nation, as a world? Uh, that's 31% of the country. They have tripled in size in the last five years. Then a group we call the concerned. These are people who think it's happening, human-caused, and serious, but they still think it's kind of distant, that the impacts are a generation or more away, uh, and that this is maybe about polar bears or developing countries, but not the U.S., not my state, not my community, not my friends, not my family, not me. And so it's psychologically out there, yeah, I kind of want somebody to do something, but I don't see why it's urgent. Then a group we call the cautious. These are people still on the fence. Is it real? Is it not? Is it human? Is it natural? Is it serious or is it overblown? Kind of confused. Then a small but important group we call the disengaged. These are people who say, you know, I think I once heard that word global warming, but I don't know anything about it. I just, it's not ideology. It's just, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Uh, then a group we call the doubtful. These are people who say, eh, it's probably not real, but if it is, it's natural, just natural cycles. You know, the earth will fix itself. Uh, so they don't tend to think about it that much. Uh, and then a group that we call the dismissive, 10% of the country, who are firmly convinced it's not real, it's not human-caused, it's not a serious problem, and the great majority of whom literally tell us they're conspiracy theorists. They say it's a hoax, it's scientists making up data, it's a UN plot to take away our sovereignty, it's a get-rich scheme by Al Gore and his friends, and many other such narratives. Now, critically, they're only 10%. They're only 10%, but they're a really loud 10%. And they're really well-represented among our They're elected representatives. very well represented yeah. in the White House and in Congress. Yeah. And so they have had an outsized influence on public discourse to such an extent that they've intimidated most of the 90% of Americans who are at least open to having a conversation about climate change to not talk about it. And this is what we call the spiral of silence, where if you're afraid of being attacked, that you might get attacked if you talk about this issue, then people self-censor. They don't talk about it. And if nobody's talking about it, then it can't be very important. So one of the first and most important things that every single person in this country can do to address this issue is talk about it. Just talk about it. Because it's really only this tiny, tiny minority that are in opposition. Uh, and in fact, to take it back to the media, of that 10%, it's a tiny, 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 tiny fraction that are actually involved on Twitter or Facebook or so on. And yet they are so loud that they have tended to intimidate everybody, journalists, policymakers, and so on, to not talk about the issue. And so I'm not kidding when I say that we're letting the last hair on the tail of the dog wag the entire dog. Not good. Not good. It seems like people maybe should talk and also organize and try to seize some power here. And so my view, the one thing that you can do more yeah. important than anything else is organize. Yeah. If you were advising a college student about how they could have study something that would give them the most leverage about this great uh, fight that we have coming forward for our whole planet, yeah. what should they know? What should they study? How oh. should they get involved uh, easy answer study what you love mm -hmm. because that's going to carry you through all the difficulty and ultimately it's going to lead you to a, uh, a career in something that you really want to do mm -hmm. but think about how it connects to climate change mm -hmm. because this is one of the critical and perhaps only advantages that climate has as an issue I call it the policy problem from hell. You almost couldn't design a worse fit for our psychology or our institutions of decision-making. 
except that we're talking about something so fundamental, so all-encompassing. We're talking about the life support systems of the planet. Every single human being, and frankly, every other critter on this planet, has a direct and real stake in this issue. And what's been so exciting in the past 10 years is all the new voices that are coming to this issue. This is not an issue that's only coming from scientists or environmentalists or some liberal politicians. No, you're hearing restaurateurs coming to this. You're hearing financial titans coming to this. The insurance industry, small business, big business, lawyers, doctors, nurses, people from every walk of life because this, in fact, does touch all of us. Major professional sports teams are getting on board with taking climate action. So I would just say to that student, do something that you love, but think about how it connects to climate change and how can you bring climate change into your decision-making and your action. It's been really an honor to talk to you today, and I think that's oh. a great note on which to end. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, just thank you and keep up the good work. Thank you, too. That was Tony Lizowitz of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Tony's at climatecommunication.yale.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.